Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Maker of Gargoyles by Clark Ashton Smith Among the many gargoyles that frowned or leered from the roof of the new-built cathedral of Vaillant, two were preeminent above the rest by virtue of their fine workmanship and their supreme grotesquerie. These two had been wrought by the stone-carver Blaise Reynard, a native of Vaillant, who had lately returned from a long sojourn in the cities of Provence and had secured employment on the cathedral when the three years' task of its construction and ornamentation was well-nigh completed. In view of the wonderful artistry shown by Reynard, it was regretted by Ambrosius the Archbishop that it had not been possible to commit the execution of all the gargoyles to this delicate and accomplished workman. But other people, with less liberal tastes than Ambrosius, were heard to express a different opinion. This opinion, perhaps, was tinged by the personal dislike that had been generally felt towards Reynard in Vaillant even from his boyhood, and which had been revived with some virulence on his return. Whether rightly or unjustly, his very physiognomy had always marked him out for public disfavour. He was inordinately dark, with hair and beard of a preternatural bluish-black, and slanting, ill-matched eyes that gave him a sinister and cunning air. His taciturn and saturnine ways were such as a superstitious people would identify with necromantic knowledge or complicity. And there were those who covertly accused him of being in league with Satan, though the accusations were little more than vague anonymous rumours, even to the end through lack of veritable evidence. However, the people who suspected Reynard of diabolic affiliations were wont for a while to instance the two gargoyles as sufficient proof. No man they contended who was so inspired by the archenemy could have carved anything so sheerly evil and malignant, could have embodied so consummately in mere stone the living lineaments of the most demoniacal of all the deadly sins. The two gargoyles were perched on opposite corners of a high tower of the cathedral. One was a snarling, murderous, cat-headed monster with retracted lips revealing formidable fangs and eyes that glared in tolerable hatred from beneath ferine brows. This creature had the claws and wings of a griffin and seemed as if it were poised in readiness to swoop down on the city of Vaillant like a harpy on its prey. Its companion was a horned satyr, with the vans of some great bat such as might roam the nether caverns, with sharp clenching talons, and a look of satanically brooding lust, as if it were gloating above the helpless object of its unclean desire. Both figures were complete, even to the hindquarters, and were not mere conventional adjuncts of the roof. One would have expected them to start at any moment from the stone in which they were mortised, Ambrosius, a lover of art, had been openly delighted with these creations because of their high technical merit and their verisimilitude as works of sculpture. But others, including many humbler dignitaries of the church, were more or less scandalized and said that the workman had informed these figures with the visible likeness of his own vices to the glory of Belial rather than of God and had thus perpetrated a sort of blasphemy. Of course, they admitted a certain amount of grotesquerie was requisite in gargoyles, but in this case, the allowable bounds had been egregiously overpassed. However, with the completion of the cathedral, and in spite of all this adverse criticism, the high-poised gargoyles of Blaise Reynard, like all other details of the building, were soon taken for granted through mere everyday familiarity, and eventually they were almost forgotten. The scandal of opposition died down, and the stone carver himself, though the town folk continued to eye him askance, was able to secure other work through the favour of his discriminating patrons. He remained in Vaillant, 
and paid his addresses, albeit without visible success, to a taverner's daughter, one Nicolette Villon, of whom it was said he had been long enamoured in his own surly and reticent fashion. But Reynard himself had not forgotten the gargoyles. Often, in passing the superb pile of the cathedral, he would gaze up at them with a secret satisfaction, whose cause he could hardly have assigned or delimited. They seemed to retain for him a rare and mystical meaning, to signalise an obscure but pleasurable triumph. He would have said, if asked for the reason of his satisfaction, that he was proud of a skilful piece of handiwork, he would not have said, and perhaps would not even have known, that in one of the gargoyles he had imprisoned all his festering rancour, all his answering spleen and hatred towards the people of Bayonne who had always hated him, and had set the image of this rancour to peer venomously down for ever from a lofty place. And perhaps he would not even have dreamt that in the second gargoyle he had somehow expressed his own dour and satyr-like passion for the girl Nicolette, a passion that had brought him back to the detested city of his youth after years of wandering, a passion singularly tenacious of one object, and differing in this regard from the ordinary lusts of a nature so brutal as Reynard's. Always to the stone-cutter, even more than to those who had criticised and abhorred his productions, the gargoyles were alive. They possessed a vitality and a sentiency of their own, and most of all did they seem to live when the summer drew to an end and the autumn rains had gathered upon Vion. Then, when the full cathedral gutters poured above the streets, one might have thought that the actual spittle of a foul malevolence the very slaver of an impure lust had somehow been mingled with the water that ran in rills from the mouths of the gargoyles. At that time, in the year of our Lord, 1138, Vion was the principal town of the province of Averroin. On two sides, the great shadow-haunted forest, a place of equivocal legends of loops, garous, and phantoms, approached the very walls and flung its umbrage upon them at early forenoon and evening. On the other sides there lay cultivated fields and gentle streams that meandered among willows or poplars, and roads that ran through an open plain to the high chateau of noble lords and to regions beyond Averroin. The town itself was prosperous, and had never shared in the ill fame of the bordering forest, it had long been sanctified by the presence of two nunneries in a monastery, and now, with the completion of the long-planned cathedral, it was thought that Vions would have henceforward the additional protection of a more august holiness. The demon and stride and incubus would keep their distance from its heaven-favoured purlieus with a more meticulous caution than before. Of course, as in all medieval towns, there had been occasional instances of alleged sorcery or demoniacal possession, and, once or twice, the perilous temptations of succubi had made their inroads on the pious virtue of Vion. But this was nothing more than might be expected in a world where the devil and his works were always more or less rampant. No one could possibly have anticipated the reign of infernal horrors that was to make hideous the latter months of autumn, following the cathedral's erection. To make the matter even more inexplicable, and more blasphemously dreadful than it would otherwise have been, the first of these horrors occurred in the neighbourhood of the cathedral itself, and almost beneath its sheltering shadow. Two men, a respectable clothier named Guillaume Maspierre, and an equally reputable cooper, one Jérôme Mazal, were returning to their lodgings in the late hours of a November eve, after imbibing both the red and white wines of the countryside in more than one tavern. According to Maspier, who alone survived to tell the tale, they were passing along a street that skirted the cathedral square, and could see the bulk of the great building against the stars, when a flying monster, black as the soot of a badon, had descended upon them from the heavens and assailed Jerome Mazal, beating him down with its heavily flapping wings and seizing him with its inch-long teeth and talons.
Maspier was unable to describe the creature with minuteness, for he had seen it but dimly and partially in the unlit street, and moreover, the fate of his companion who had fallen to the cobblestones with the black devil snarling and tearing at his throat had not induced Maspier to linger in that vicinity. He had betaken himself from the scene with all the celerity of which he was capable, and had stopped only at the house of a priest many streets away, where he had related his adventure between shudderings and hiccupings. Armed with holy water and aspergillus, and accompanied by many of the townspeople carrying torches, staves, and halberds, the priest was led by Maspier to the place of the horror, and there they had found the body of Mazal, with fearfully mangled face and throat and bosom lined with bloody lacerations. The demoniac assailant had flown, and it was not seen or encountered again that night. But those who had beheld its work returned aghast to their homes, feeling that a creature of nethermost hell had come to visit their city, and perchance to abide therein. Consternation was rife on the morrow when the story became generally known, and rites of exorcism against the invading demon were performed by the clergy in all public places and before thresholds. But the sprinkling of holy water and the mumbling of the stated forms were futile, for the evil spirit was still abroad, and its malignity was proved once more on the night following the ghastly death of Jerome Mazal. This time it claimed two victims, burghers of high probity and some consequence, on whom it descended in a narrow alley, slaying one of them instantaneously and dragging down the other from behind as he sought to flee. The shrill cries of the helpless men and the guttural growling of the demon were heard by people in the houses along the alley, and some, who were hardy enough to peer from their windows, had seen the departure of the infamous assailant, blotting out the autumn stars with the sable and misshapen foulness of its wings, and hovering inexorable menace above the housetops. After this, few people would venture abroad at night, unless in case of dire and exigent need, and those who did venture went in armed companies and were all furnished with flambeau, thinking thus to frighten away the demon, which they had judged a creature of darkness that would abhor the light and shrink therefrom through the nature of its kind. But the boldness of this fiend was beyond measure, for it proceeded to attack more than one company of worthy citizens, disregarding the flaring torches that were thrust in its face, or putting them out with the stenchful wind of its wide vans. Evidently, it was a spirit of homicidal hate, for all the people on whom it seized were grievously mangled or torn to numberless shreds by its teeth and talons. Those who saw it and survived were wont to describe it variously, and with much ambiguity, but all agreed in attributing to it the head of a ferocious animal and the wings of a monstrous bird. Some, the most learned in demonology, were fain to identify it with Modo, the spirit of murder, and others took it for one of the great lieutenants of Satan, perhaps a Maimon or a Lastor gone mad with exasperation at the impregnable supremacy of Christ in the holy city of Vion. The terror that soon prevailed beneath the widening scope of these satanical incursions and depredations was beyond all belief, a clotted, seething, devil-ridden gloom of superstitious obsession not to be hinted at in modern language. Even by daylight, the gothic wings of nightmare seemed to brood in undeparting oppression above the city, and fear was everywhere like the foul contagion of some epidemic plague. The inhabitants went their way in prayer and trembling, and the archbishop himself, as well as the subordinate clergy, confessed an inability to cope with the ever-growing horror. An emissary was sent to Rome to procure water that had been specially sanctified by the Pope. This alone, it was thought, would be efficacious enough to drive away the dreadful visitant. In the meantime, the horror waxed and mounted to its culmination. One eve, toward the middle of November, 
the abbot of the local monastery of Cordelier, who had gone forth to administer extreme unction to a dying friend, was seized by the black devil just as he approached the threshold of his destination and was slain in the same atrocious manner as the other victims. To this doubly infamous deed, a scarce believable blasphemy was soon added. On the very next night, while the torn body of the abbot lay on a rich catafalque in the cathedral and masses were being said and tapers burnt, the demon invaded the high nave through the open door, extinguished all the candles with one flap of its sooty wings and dragged down no less than three of the officiating priests to an unholy death in the darkness. Everyone now felt that a truly formidable assault was being made by the powers of evil on the Christian probity of Vion. In the condition of abject terror, of extreme disorder and demoralization that followed upon this new atrocity, there was a deplorable outbreak of human crime, of murder and rapine and thievery, together with covert manifestations of Satanism and celebrations of the Black Mass attended by many neophytes. Then, in the midst of all this pandemoniacal fear and confusion, it was rumoured that a second devil had been seen in Vion, that the murderous fiend was accompanied by a spirit of equal deformity and darkness, whose intentions were those of lechery, and the witch molested none but women. This creature had frightened several dames and demoiselles and maidservants into a veritable hysteria by peering through their bedroom windows, and had sidled lasciviously with uncouth mows and grimaces and grotesque flappings of its bat-shaped wings towards others who had occasion to fare from house to house across the nocturnal streets. However, strange to say, there were no authentic instances in which the chastity of any woman had suffered actual harm from this noisome incubus. Many were approached by it, and were terrified immoderately by the hideousness and lustfulness of its demeanour, but no one was ever touched. Even in that time of horror, both spiritual and corporeal, there were those who made a ribald jest of this singular abstention on the part of the demon, and said it was seeking throughout Vion for someone whom it had not yet found. The lodgings of Blaise Reynard were separated only by the length of a dark and crooked alley from the tavern kept by Jean Villon, the father of Nicolette. In this tavern Reynard had been wont to spend his evenings, though his suit was frowned upon by Jean Villon, and had received but scant encouragement from the girl herself. However, because of his well-filled purse and his almost illimitable capacity for wine, Reynard was tolerated. He came early each night with the falling of darkness, and would sit in silence, hour after hour, staring with hot and sullen eyes at Nicolette, and gulping joylessly at the potent vintages of Averroin. Apart from their desire to retain his custom, the people of the tavern were a little afraid of him, on account of his dubious and semi-sorcerous reputation, and also because of his surly temper. They did not wish to antagonize him any more than was necessary. Like everyone else in Vion, Reynard had felt the suffocating burden of superstitious terror during those nights when the fiendish marauder was hovering above the town, and might descend on the luckless wayfarer at any moment, in any locality. Nothing less urgent and imperative than the obsession of his half-bestial longing for Nicolette could have induced him to traverse after dark the length of the winding alley to the tavern door. The autumn nights had been moonless. Now, on the evening that followed the desecration of the cathedral itself by the murderous devil, a new-born crescent was lowering its fragile, sanguine-coloured horn beyond the housetops as Reynard went forth from his lodgings at the accustomed hour. He lost sight of its comforting beam in the high-walled and narrow alley, and shivered with dread as he hastened onward through the shadows that were dissipated only by the rare and timid ray from some lofty window. It seemed to him, at each turn and angle, 
that the gloom was curded by the unclean umbrage of satanic wings, and might reveal in another instant the gleaming of abhorrent eyes ignited by the everlasting coals of the pit. When he came forth at the alley's end, he saw with a start of fresh panic that the crescent moon was blotted out by a cloud that had the semblance of uncouthly arched and pointed vans. He reached the tavern with a sense of supreme relief, for he had begun to feel a distinct intuition that someone, or something, was following him, unheard and invisible, a presence that seemed to load the dusk with prodigious menace. He entered and closed the door behind him very quickly, as if he were shutting it in the face of a dread pursuer. There were few people in the tavern that evening. The girl, Nicolette, was serving wine to a mercer's assistant, one Raoul Coupon, a personable youth and a newcomer in the neighborhood. And she was laughing with what Reynard considered unseemly gaiety at the broad jests and amorous sallies of this Raoul. Jean Villon was discussing in a low voice the latest enormities and was drinking fully as much liquor as his customers. Glowering with jealousy at the presence of Raoul Coupon, whom he suspected of being a favoured rival, Reynard seated himself in silence and stared malignly at the flirtatious couple. No one seemed to have noticed his entrance, for Villon went on talking to his cronies without pause or interruption, and Nicolette and her companion were equally oblivious. To his jealous rage, Reynard soon added the resentment of one who feels that he is being deliberately ignored. He began to pound on the table with his heavy fists to attract attention. Villon, who had been sitting all the while with his back turned, now called out to Nicolette without even troubling to face around on his stool, telling her to serve Reynard. Giving a backward smile at Coupon, she came slowly and with open reluctance to the stone carver's table. She was small and buxom with reddish-gold hair that curled luxuriantly above the short, delicious oval of her face, and she was gowned in a tight-fitting dress of apple green that revealed the firm, seductive outlines of her hips and bosom. Her air was disdainful and a little cold, for she did not like Reynard and had taken small pains at any time to conceal her aversion. But to Reynard. She was lovelier and more desirable than ever, and he felt a savage impulse to seize her in his arms and carry her bodily away from the tavern. Before the eyes of Raoul Coupon and her father, Bring me a pitcher of La Frenée, he ordered gruffly, in a voice that betrayed his mingled resentment and desire. Tossing her head lightly and scornfully with more glances at Coupon, the girl obeyed. She placed the fiery, blood-dark wine before Reynard without speaking, and then went back to resume her bantering with the mercer's assistant. Reynard began to drink, and the potent vintage merely served to inflame his smouldering enmity and passion. His eyes became venomous, his curling lips malignant as those of the gargoyles he had carved on the new cathedral, a baleful, primordial anger like the rage of some morose and thwarted fawn burned within him with its slow red fire. But he strove to repress it and sat silent and motionless, except for the frequent filling and emptying of his wine cup. Raoul Coupin had also consumed a liberal quantity of wine. As a result, he soon became bolder in his lovemaking and strove to kiss the hand of Nicolette, who had now seated herself on the bench beside him. The hand was playfully withheld, and then, after its owner had cuffed Raoul very lightly and briskly, was granted to the claimant in a fashion that stuck Reynard as being no less than wanton. Snarling inarticulately, with a mad impulse to rush forward and slay the successful rival with his bare hands, he started to his feet and stepped toward the playful pair. His movement was noted by one of the men in the far corner, who spoke warningly to Villon. The tavern-keeper arose, lurching a little from his potations, and came warily across the room with his eyes on Reynard, ready to interfere in case of violence. Reynard paused with momentary irresolution, and then went on, half insane with a mounting hatred for them all, 
He longed to kill Willem and Coupin, to kill the hateful cronies who sat staring from the corner, and then, above their throttled corpses, to ravage with fierce kisses and vehement caresses the shrinking lips and body of Nicolette. Seeing the approach of the stone carver, and knowing his evil temper and dark jealousy, Coupin also rose to his feet and plucked stealthily beneath his coat at the hilt of a little dagger which he carried. In the meantime, Jean Villon had interposed his burly bulk between the rivals. For the sake of the tavern's good repute, he wished to prevent the possible brawl. Back to your table, stone cutter, he roared belligerently at Reynard. Being unarmed and seeing himself outnumbered, Reynard paused again, though his anger still simmered within him like the contents of a sorcerer's cauldron. With ruddy points of murderous flame in his hollow, slitted eyes, he glared at the three people before him and saw beyond them, with instinctive rather than conscious awareness, the leaded panes of the tavern window, in whose glass the room was dimly reflected with its glowing tapers, its glimmering tableware, the heads of Coupin en Villon and the girl Nicolette, and his own shadowy face among them. Strangely, and it would seem inconsequently, he remembered at that moment the dark, ambiguous cloud he had seen across the moon and the insistent feeling of obscure pursuit while he had traversed the alley. Then, as he still gazed irresolutely at the group before him and its vague reflection in the glass beyond, there came a thunderous crash, and the panes of the window with their pictured scene were shattered inward in a score of fragments. Here the litter of falling glass had reached the tavern floor, a swart and monstrous form flew into the room, with a beating of heavy vans that caused the tapers to flare troublously, and the shadows to dance like a sabbat of misshapen devils. The thing hovered for a moment, and seemed to tower in a great darkness higher than the ceiling above the heads of Reynard and the others as they turned toward it. They saw the malignant burning of its eyes, like coals in the depths of Tartarian pits, and the curling of its hateful lips on the bare teeth, that were longer and sharper than serpent fangs. Behind it now, another shadowy flying monster came in through the broken window, with a loud flapping of its ribbed and pointed wings. There was something lascivious in the very motion of its flight, even as homicidal hatred and malignity were manifest in the flight of the other, its satyr-like face was twisted in a horrible, never-changing leer, and its lustful eyes were fixed on Nicolette as it hung in the air beside the first intruder. Reynard, as well as the other men, was petrified by a feeling of astonishment and consternation so extreme as to almost preclude terror. Voiceless and motionless, they beheld the demoniac intrusion, and the consternation of Reynard in particular was mingled with an element of unspeakable surprise, together with a dreadful recognizance. But the girl Nicolette, with a mad scream of horror, turned and started to flee across the room. As if her cry had been the one provocation needed, the two demons swooped upon their victims. One with a ferocious slash of its outstretched claws, tore open the throat of Jean Villon, who fell with a gurgling, blood-choked groan, and then in the same fashion it assailed Raoul Coupon. The other, in the meanwhile, had pursued and overtaken the fleeing girl and had seized her in its bestial forearms, with the ribbed wings enfolding her like a hellish drapery. The room was filled by a moaning whirlwind, by a chaos of wild cries and tossing, struggling shadows. Reynard heard the guttural snarling of the murderous monster, muffled by the body of Coupon, whom it was tearing with its teeth, and he heard the lubricous laughter of the incubus above the shrieks of the hysterically frightened girl. Then the grotesquely flaring tapers went out in a gust of swirling air, and Reynard received a violent blow in the darkness, the blow of some rushing object, perhaps of a passing wing that was hard and heavy as stone. He fell and became insensible. Dully and confusedly, with much effort, Reynard struggled back to consciousness. For a brief interim he could not remember where he was nor what had happened. He was troubled by the painful throbbing of his head, by the humming of agitated voices about him, by the glaring of many lights and the thronging of many faces when he opened his eyes, 
and above all by the sense of nameless but grievous calamity and uttermost horror that weighed him down from the first dawning of sentiency. Memory returned to him, laggard and reluctant, and with it a full awareness of his surroundings and situation. He was lying on the tavern floor, and his own warm, sticky blood was rilling across his face from the wound on his aching head. The long room was half filled with people of the neighbourhood, bearing torches and knives and halberds, who had entered and were peering at the corpses of Villemont Coupon, which lay amid pools of wine-diluted blood and the wreckage of the shattered furniture and tableware. Nicolette, with her green gown in shreds and her body crushed by the embraces of the demon, was moaning feebly while women crowded about her with ineffectual cries and questions which she could not even hear or understand. The two cronies of Villon, horribly clawed and mangled, were dead beside their overturned table. Stupefied with horror and still dizzy from the blow that had laid him unconscious, Reynard staggered to his feet and found himself surrounded at once by inquiring faces and voices. Some of the people were a little suspicious of him since he was the sole survivor in the tavern and bore an ill repute. But his replies to their questions soon convinced them that the new crime was wholly the work of the same demons that had plagued Vaillant in so monstrous a fashion for weeks past. Reynard, however, was unable to tell them all that he had seen, or to confess the ultimate sources of his fear and stupefaction. The secret that which he knew was locked in the seething pit of his tortured and devil-ridden soul. Somehow he left the ravaged inn. He pushed his way through the gathering crowd with its terror-muted murmurs and found himself alone on the midnight streets. Heedless of his own possible peril and scarcely knowing where he went, he wandered through Vaillant for many hours and some while in his wanderings he came to his own workshop. With no assignable reason for the act, he entered and re-emerged with a heavy hammer, which he carried with him during his subsequent peregrinations. Then, driven by his awful and unremissive torture, he went on till the pale dawn touched the spires and the housetops with a ghostly glimmering. By a half-conscious compulsion, his steps had led him to the square before the cathedral. Ignoring the amazed verger who had just opened the doors, he entered and sought a stairway that wound tortuously upward to the tower on which his own gargoyles were ensconced. In the chill and livid light of a sunless morning, he emerged on the roof, and leaning perilously from the verge, he examined the carven figures. He felt no surprise, only the hideous confirmation of a fear too ghastly to be named, when he saw that the teeth and claws of the malign cat-headed griffin was stained with darkening blood, and that shreds of apple-green cloth were hanging from the talons of the lustful, bat-winged satyr. It seemed to Reynard in the dim ashen light that a look of unspeakable triumph, of intolerable irony, was imprinted on the face of this latter creature. He stared at it with fearful and agonizing fascination, while impotent rage, abhorrence and repentance deeper than that of the damned arose within him in a smothering flood. He was hardly aware that he had raised the iron hammer and had struck wildly at the satyr's horned profile till he heard the sullen, angry clang of impact and found that he was tottering on the edge of the roof to retain his balance. The furious blow had merely chipped the features of the gargoyle and had not wiped away the malignant lust and exultation. Again, Reynard raised the heavy hammer. It fell on empty air, for even as he struck, the stone carver felt himself lifted and drawn backward by something that sank into his flesh like many separate knives. He staggered helplessly, his feet slipped, and then he was lying on the granite verge with his head and shoulders over the dark, deserted street. Half swooning and sick with pain, he saw above him the other gargoyle, the claws of whose right foreleg were firmly embedded in his shoulder. They tore deeper, as if with a dreadful clenching. The monster seemed to tower like some fabulous beast above its prey, and he felt himself slipping dizzily across the cathedral gutter, with the gargoyle twisting and turning 
as if to resume its normal position over the gulf. Its slow, inexorable movement seemed to be part of his vertigo. The very tower was tilting and revolving beneath him in some unnatural, nightmare fashion. Dimly, in a daze of fear and agony, Reynard saw the remorseless tiger face bending towards him with its horrid teeth laid bare in an eternal rictus of diabolic hate. Somehow, he had retained his hammer. With an instinctive impulse to defend himself, he struck at the gargoyle, whose cruel features seemed to approach him like something seen in the ultimate madness and distortion of delirium. Even as he struck, the vertiginous turning movement continued, and he felt the talons dragging him outward on empty air. In his cramped recumbent position, the blow fell short of the hateful face and came down with a dull clangor on the foreleg, whose curving talons were fixed in his shoulder like meat hooks. The clangor ended in a sharp cracking sound, and the leaning gargoyle vanished from Reynard's vision as he fell. He saw nothing more except the dark mass of the cathedral tower that seemed to soar away from him and to rush upward unbelievably in the livid, starless heavens to which the belated sun had not yet risen. It was the Archbishop Ambrosius, on his way to early Mass, who found the shattered body of Reynard, lying face downward in the square. Ambrosius crossed himself in startled horror at the sight, and then, when he saw the object that was still clinging to Reynard's shoulder, he repeated the gesture with a more than pious promptness. He bent down to examine the thing. With the infallible memory of a true art lover, he recognized it at once. Then, through the same clearness of recollection, he saw that the stone foreleg, whose claws were so deeply buried in Reynard's flesh, had somehow undergone a most unnatural alteration. The paw, as he remembered it, should have been slightly bent and relaxed, but now it was stiffly outthrust and elongated, as if, like the paw of a living limb, it had reached for something, or had dragged a heavy burden with its ferine talons. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? It's ferine talons indeed. Clark Ashton Smith, the maker of gargoyles. Um, I really like that story, and it has a history with me. But first, I've got to tell you that I've snuck in and I've switched off the washing machine and the tumble dryer. So imagine having a washing machine and a tumble dryer in your recording studio. But the truth is, dear listener, I don't have a recording studio. This is my front room. I've, I've switched them off for a little bit, okay? So Clark Ashton Smith was born in 1893 in Long Valley, California, and he died in California in 1961. He doesn't seem to much have gone outside California, but then who would if you lived in California? He began as a poet and wrote decadent, overblown romantic poetry, and he was one of the West Coast romantics. He liked Swinburne, and he was um, well-supported and recognized in his youth as a poet. Um, he was loved by Lovecraft, and with uh, Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft himself was one of the big three writers, ultimately, of the Weird Tales magazine. Ray Bradbury was also a fan, and we've done a couple of Ray Bradbury stories. Um, I was recently rereading Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is very appropriate for this time of year, coming up to Halloween. And it, the language there is very overblown and poetic. I think you either like that kind of language or you don't. I was reading some reviews of Ashton Smith's stuff, and some people struggle with his language. Um, he is absolutely heir to Lovecraft, not heir to Lovecraft, but of, a, of the same school as Lovecraft, heir to Poe, perhaps. Interestingly, there's a little bit of a, a chain because um, Poe wrote his Poe stuff, and he was loved by Charles Baudelaire, the French decadent poet, who translated Poe into French. And then um, Clark Ashton Smith was a big fan of Charles Baudelaire in his turn. So this, this chain of overblown decadence of... Um, is it sensual? Essentialism? In any case, this, this vein of sensualist decadence comes right through. 
he was quite explicit that he used his language as, as he calls it, a kind of um, verbal black magic, and it was to, to en enchant with a kind of incantation, the, the using the rhythms of the words. So I like that kind of thing. So I appreciate that many people don't. Many people go with um, the Hemingway and uh, George Orwell school of uh, right plain, right plain lad. I don't think either of them actually spoke like that, but I can imagine if they did, they would. Mm, yeah, that doesn't make sense really, does it? Um, he, he's got some great words, vans for wings. I thought they were kind of sneakers, you know, vans. And ferine, which I've commented on. My spell checker didn't know that either. Um, it means a feral. It's a version of feral, really, savage and untamed. And uh, he uses odd words like troublously. And instead of sentient, sentiency, and uh, also lubri lubricus, I actually re read it first as lubricious, but it's actually lubricus, which is, I haven't come across before, but there we are. So he began to write poetry from the age of 11, and his first novel, the age of 14, he began to sell his stories, age 17, to Black Cat magazine. And his influences were the Arabian Nights, and you can see the fairy tale stuff talked about Baudelaire, who he liked. He loved the Brothers Grimm, Edgar Allan Poe, and the Gothic classics such as Vathek. He was unwell for a period, and we have this idea of these decadent, sickly people. He was only 60, 61 when he died. No, he got married when he was 61, but he didn't live long. Um, he lived seven. No, he was, he was 68, so that's not too bad, is it? It depends how old you are, whether you think that's too bad or not. If you're 22, nah, that's not too bad. Um, if you're 59, you think, hmm. But anyway, he got married age 61 and set up his house in Pacific Grove with uh, Carolyn Jones Dorman, who was a publicist and worked in Hollywood. You know, he, he helped with her three kids. So he, wasn't, and he nursed his parents when they were ill, so he's actually one of these guys who seems all right, really. He seems, there are probably skeletons in the cupboard because everybody's got them. He corresponded with Lovecraft, New Jack London and Ambrose Bierce times. Um, one of the things that Lovecraft does is, with the Cthulhu mythos, is he allows other writers and actually encourages a circle of weird tale writers to use these worlds. And actually, um, they grow um, organically, and they, they're not always consistent, because obviously they're not going to be if different writers are using their inspiration. And, and that kind of bothers people who like to codify things. So some people want the, the Cthulhu mythos, like the Tolkien mythos, to be very precise. The Tolkien mythos is only precise because Tolkien wrote it and nobody else. Whereas the, the Cthulhu mythos is like a spreading tentacled beast. Um, Averroin, where this is set, Ashton Smith has various settings. Uh, one of them is this Averroin. I loved this as a kid. I, of all of them, Robert E. Howard I thought was a bit preposterous. I was recently listening to the HP Literary Podcast. And you should check that out because it's really, really funny with Chad Pfeiffer and Chris Lackey. Uh, and they did The Queen of the Black Coast by Howard. And I mean, they, they, they had me in stitches. And Lovecraft, I like, but I prefer Ashton Smith, particularly his Averroin. This idea of this um, medieval French kingdom surrounded by a werewolf-haunted forest. And I think another thing he did really well in this story is this religious panic and we've seen them in our own time and they and they go throughout history people get this idea that something is being caused by you know in this case black magic or whatever the satanic panics that you know the blood libel that the, the jewish people were accused of these crazy ideas that people start to believe and then panic and then take extreme action and get very because they're anxious they are um, i'm not making any references to our own times about plagues of black magic or just plagues moving among us and making people very frightened and doing and, and making people kind of fall out with each other really anyway i again uh, retreat from any social commentary so uh, the other thing to say about uh, ashton smith is he is not afraid of sensual themes i mean there is a sex a slight sexual element with uh, what's her name nicolette in this with her tight apple green dress showing off all her curves. Now, I can't imagine Lovecraft would have gone into that, but apparently Ashton Smith, it is said, was fond of female company and sensuality. So there you go. The other thing I wanted to say is there is a little bit of a character arc in this, isn't there? Our man, Reynard, 
there's, there's, it is actually quite interesting how Man Reynard goes from being a, a blackguard to actually trying to make up for when he realises what he's done by creating these gargoyles, he tries to make up for it and falls to his death. Nicolette lives, so that's actually positive. So those are two positive things. Reynard becomes a better man, even though he dies. And Nicolette lives. So some of the horror stories wouldn't have those two, those, those two things happening. It would just be awful. It's not cosmic horror at all. So yeah, so there's that. Um, the other references that jump into my mind are, of course, a picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, whereby, of course, Dorian has a, deliberately has a picture which gets old and ugly as he remains beautiful. And in this story, of course, the ugliness of Reynard is, is translated into these statues. But he does it unconsciously. He doesn't. He's not deliberately doing it. It doesn't make him any less evil. But the, but it, it it's this kind of um, motif of, a, of an object that becomes a receptacle for horribleness. In this case, I don't think necessarily need be horribleness, but it, it is in this case, you know. And it, it it is in Dorian Gray as well. The other reference, of course, is Doctor Who and the Daemons. Now I remember watching that when I was a kid, and I loved that of my favourite with John Pertwee, this English folk horror village where all oh, that was before we even knew what folk horror was and these statues come to life they turn out to be aliens of course but they're, but they're worshipped as if they're devils and i actually wonder whether the right i don't know who wrote it actually the daemons was inspired by this story you never know dear anyway there we go so a, a good one and um, what i'm doing with these stories is i'm putting them out on my Substack as soon as i do them but i'm actually scheduling them on the, the normal podcast Captivate. These are going to be free. I'm going to do a turn of the screw and I think I'm going to make it free. If you'd like to support me and show your appreciation, come over to Substack and sign up. You can sign up for a free plan, but if you really want to support me, there's a $5 a month plan as well. And you do get exclusive stuff. So that's my little thing there. I should say that I'm also promoting my own writing and I'm kind of getting into these newsletter swaps. So I need to mention. If you look in the, the notes, uh, you will see that I am mentioning some of the people's work, and that is Lois Lee Gates has done a, a book called The Haunting at Captive Hotel, so you can follow that. Also, I'm in the 13 Days of Halloween giveaway. I'll put the links to that in the show notes. You can go, and there's kind of a whole bunch of horror ghosts, actually free, you know, e-books giveaway, so take those. And the final thing is to say that if you want a copy of my The Dalston Vampire audiobook and ebook, just I'll put a link in, you can get a free copy, okay? If you sign up. Now, it's different from Substack. This may be complicated. Don't worry about it. There's no obligation or anything. There's no money involved. Just, it's a kind of a giveaway. All right, all right. I think that's cheers. Yes, that's a wrap. <laughs>